Good morning, church family. Um, It's been a minute since I've been behind the music stand, and it's good to be back. It's good to see you all. So as I um, inquired of the Lord what word he might have for us this morning, I found myself reflecting on the unusual season that we've been in for the last couple of years. Um, I think it can be easy to kind of numb out to things, but for the last two years, things have been really weird. Like we, we had a global pandemic, right? That happened. We're, we're coming out of it. Um, if you look at the news at any given time, there's wars and rumors of wars. You've got what's going on in the Ukraine. You've got all kinds of conflict springing up, unusual circumstances I don't need to tell you that things right now feel dark and unstable. We've got scores of churches turning away from the truth of Scripture on issues of human sexuality, which you've heard us talk about a number of times. And many churches are reporting shrinking numbers at alarming rates. Last week, we also talked about how Christian worldview is shifting in ways that are just really heartbreaking and alarming Earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, tornadoes, racial tension, and violence continue to splash across the headlines. As we've watched the world spiral, we and many others have prayed for revival. We've been talking about revival. We keep longing for God to intervene. And friends, our God hears, and he's faithful, and he will bring revival And restoration to the ends of the earth. He will shine his light to every dark shadow on this globe. He will make all things new. And I believe that that includes each one of us. For the last several weeks, we've lifted our prayers asking God to bring revival to our youth, to our city, to our nation, to our churches. And this morning, we're going to talk about revival for us. What does this mean for us? Revival is not a spectator sport. It's not um, a basketball game that we watch from our living rooms and our recliners. What does it mean for us? And so to look at that, we're going we're gonna to take a look at Psalm 51. And so if you've got your Bibles, there's some in the back if you would like them as well. While you find that, I want to give some context for Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 is a psalm written by David. Most of us know about King David. We'll talk about him in a minute. And it's written after the prophet Nathan had come to convict David about some really awful sins. You may remember this story. It's probably one of the least pleasant ones in the Bible. You can find the full story in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. But what happens is King David, this man who is said to have the heart of God, a man after God's own heart, he's a legend of the faith. We read his psalms and we've been blessed so much by the things that the Lord did in and through David and yet this is a bad day for David. Second Samuel tells us that it's spring. Spring has come and that spring is the time when kings go to war, but unusually King David, who's known as a man of war, a king of war, just war, he decides to stay home. He sends his generals and his armies off to war, and he's just not in the mood to fight, I guess. So he's home. All the fighting men are off at war, but the women and the children and King David are still at home. 
Now, one night, David is restless. We don't know why. Has anyone been restless and started pacing in the middle of the night before? Yes, Mark, yes. So King David is awake. We don't know why. And he starts pacing his roof. And from that spot, he sees the beautiful Bathsheba. She's presumably bathing on her own roof. And David lusts after her. He discovers that she's the wife of one of his faithful soldiers who's out fighting wars for him. And despite the fact that he's married to many women and Bathsheba is married to someone else, David has her brought to him and he rapes her. Bathsheba becomes pregnant and David scrambles to hide what he did to keep it in the shadows. Now, two times, David brings Uriah home from the front, hoping that he'll go visit his wife so that it could be assumed when his baby comes that it's Uriah's. But Uriah is a good soldier. And instead of going home to his wife, he stays at his post. So David gets extreme. He orders Uriah to be sent to the front of the battle lines, and he orders the other men to abandon Uriah at the worst point of fighting. And so obviously Uriah dies. And David marries Bathsheba. And I mean, you can imagine this. He looks like such a noble king, right? Like he's taken in this poor pregnant war widow and nobody knows what he did. And then for nearly a year, while Bathsheba battles morning sickness and heartburn, heartache and hidden trauma, this slimy, vile thing remains hidden. In the darkness. David continues to put that crown on his head every morning. He does all the things that a king of his day would do, and we can even assume that he shows up at the temple. He makes sacrifices and enjoys the feast with his neighbors. Everything appears hunky dory, business as usual, until God sends Nathan. This poor, poor man. <laughs> Poor Nathan enters the throne room of the king of all of Israel with an allegory about a rich man stealing a poor man's beloved lamb. The Spirit of God uses this story to peel back the darkness. The light shines on what David had hoped would stay in the shadows. And David is gutted. The truth is that he is that rich man who stole a poor man's beloved And David suddenly knows that God knows what he did. And his whole being heaves under the weight of his sin. Now this psalm is the song that poured out of David's broken heart. And it's a song that David sings to the God who had peeled back the shadows. And so we're going to read this psalm. And I'm just going to note things as we go. We're going to go kind of slow through it and pick out what's going on. In David's heart as we go. So Psalm 51, David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is always before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And so you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. 
Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. And you taught me wisdom in that secret place. David is done covering up his sins. And he's not just mad that he got caught. You know, there's a difference. David's crushed by his sin, and he names the depth, the absolute bentness of his own spirit, his total depravity since he was born. David's also aware that while he committed sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, the biggest grievance here is what he did against God. David says that God is justified to pass judgment on him because God had called him to better. He'd set him apart for better since the day he was born. And yet David had still rebelled against God. So he goes on with this contrite heart. Verse 7, he says, cleanse me with hyssop. Hyssop is what was used to place the blood over the doorposts in Exodus. And hyssop was also used in the temple for ceremonial cleansing. And so David says, cleanse me with hyssop. Cleanse me with your blood that washes away sin and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow and let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. It's interesting that while David had hid his own sins from himself, it seems, in retrospect, he's aware that that sin had had a very real effect on him. Just an awareness, like in this last season, Lord, things have been heavy. My body has felt crushed. My spirit has not been free to experience joy and gladness. He recognized that he denied his sin, but it still weighed on him. So he says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Now this verb for create is an ongoing thing. And so what David is saying is, continue to create a clean heart in me. It's not a one and done thing. It's an every day, every minute. Keep creating and keep my spirit strong and steadfast. I know I can't do it on my own, Lord. Keep me strong. Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. Now, David probably remembers how God took his spirit from King Saul and left him. David also knows that separation from God is the absolute worst punishment that he could ever have. And so he's begging God to hide his face from his sin, but not from David himself. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, verse 12, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Isn't that interesting? David doesn't just want things fixed for him. He doesn't just want his joy back. David wants to bear testimony to what God has done. He wants other sinners to experience the restoration that he knows is coming from God. And he wants all the praise and all the glory for all of it to go to God. Verse 16 
You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken heart, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. This is kind of confusing. Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet at the time of this writing, and so people still need to make those sacrifices. God is still asking for them to sacrifice. But what David is acknowledging is that going through religious motions without true, transparent repentance and conviction is worthless. David acknowledges that all those times he went to the temple while he was lying to God, it's like it didn't count. He was lying to God as he went. He went through the motions, but he was hiding the whole way. Verse 18, May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, and burnt offerings offered whole, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so as David concludes, he's pointing out a crucial kingdom principle. David understands that as king, whatever happens in him has a direct impact on Zion, on the kingdom of Israel that he rules over. The health of David's spirit and the strength of his relationship with God is directly connected to the health and the prosperity of the nation of Israel. Build up Zion, David says, may it please you to prosper the city as we offer authentic sacrifices to you. And so God has brought restoration to David and that restoration is going to bubble over into the nation as they come with honest and contrite hearts. And so how does this story end? Despite David's broken heart, there are consequences for his sins. David tears his clothes and he goes around in sackcloth and mourning over his sins, crying out to God to have mercy. But he and Bathsheba's baby passes away. And you know what David does? He doesn't get mad at God and shake his fist like I know I would. He goes to the temple, he cleans himself up, and he brings a sacrifice of praise to the God who gives and takes away. The God whose ways are higher. And so soon after David comes to God, he and Bathsheba bear another son. You might know his name, it's Solomon. And the text tells us that God loved Solomon deeply. He would one day sit on the throne of Israel, he would build the temple, And he would go down in history as the richest and wisest king on this earth. Solomon was the fruit of transparent, authentic, contrite repentance. He was the fruit of bringing a sacrifice of praise, of believing God to be good even when his ways don't feel good. Solomon is the true fruit of revival. And so at this point, I'm thinking, many of us are thinking, okay, Pastor Jalisa, but I don't have like some deep, dark, double felony sin hiding in my closet like David did. What does this mean for me? While David's story might be a little extreme, it identifies several subtle symptoms of a human in need of God's restoring work. Why was David a king of war at home during wartime. I think that complacency and apathy are costly and dangerous. 
particularly when they cause us to avoid battles that God has called us to fight. When we're complacent or apathetic or we just don't care to invest in our relationship with God and the things that he has called us to do, something isn't quite right. Why was David restless and sleepless that fateful night? I don't think he had coffee. I don't know. Why was he out pacing? What was he looking for? Comfort, peace, validation. I don't know what it was. There are lots of possibilities, and I don't want to presume too much here. But at minimum, we can say that God hold, God promises to hold us in perfect peace as we hold our thoughts captive to him and his word. And we can say that God promises to give us rest. He gives us comfort. He gives us fulfillment. He blesses us with contentment. And so we conclude that David's pacing means that he was looking for something that he wasn't asking for from God, that he should have been asking for from God. Sometimes a lack of peace, an inability to feel content, to experience joy, it's a symptom that we need God to do something. Something isn't quite right. Why was David, this hero of the faith, like I pray that my son will be like David. <laughs> look, at, look at this text. Why was this phenomenal man going through the motions even as he was hiding these horrible, horrible things? The reality is that sin is slippery and the devil is deceptive. David didn't repent because I think David was blind. I think he justified his sin in his own mind to the point that he could just pretend it never happened. The light of God has a way of unearthing things that we're not even aware of. Things that we didn't know existed. It's why in Psalm 139, David begs God, like, shine your light in my spirit, because I know there's things in there that I don't even know. This week I heard one of the most loving people I know confess that the Lord had convicted her that she needed to love people more purely. Couldn't even believe it. But it caused me to wonder. I'm a human. There's always ways that I'm bent wrong, that the Lord can move, do good things in. What would happen if I invited him to shine his light into those shadows? If I was transparent enough to ask? As we excavate the circumstances that led to David's downfall, it's logical to conclude that there's likely not a single person on this planet that doesn't need the light of God. And so how does it happen? How was David revived? I think as we watch revival on TV, it feels like um, the power of God just falls and we're all kind of magically get what we need. I'm not sure how to name it. But God can work that way. He can. But most commonly, he works through people. He works through people to bring that revival. And it's not just something that happens only in big corporate events. It's something that God's willing to do for each and every single one of us as we invite him to and as we come to him. Now think about it. God didn't convict David just by showing up in David's bedchamber. He didn't shake David to his senses in the middle of the temple celebration. God sends a prophet, a prophet named Nathan, who is presumably listening to the voice of the Lord with a word of knowledge about David's sins that no one else knew. And in response, David repented with authenticity and transparency. He made room for God to work 
And then, when David had tasted the bitter consequences of his actions, he still came to God in praise. Humility lays the altar for revival. Keeping the thoughts of our mind, standing on the truth of who God is and what he says, rather than our own desires, where the hardship of our circumstances puts the kindling in place for fire to fall. There's much more that I could say about creating context for God to move. Last week, Heather, you shared about a circle of revival. You talked about drawing a circle around yourself and saying, God, bring revival, whatever's in this circle. And, you know, the end of the joke here is that I'm in the middle of the circle. God, bring revival here. Each of you, um, there's, there's packets everywhere. I don't know if you received them. One is a list that you've got there. It's written by a man named A.W. Tozer, who was a man after God's own heart, who was used mightily by him. He lists out ten different ways to seek and pursue personal revival. The second thing you've got in that packet is a prayer by a woman named Sylvia Gunter, also a valiant warrior of the Lord. And she's got a prayer there praying for personal revival. And I want to invite each of you and myself to take this packet home and to spend some time with the Lord. Because I believe that these things that we're praying about for the world, it's, it's a river that's going to bubble out of each one of us. As we share our testimonies, as God works in us, as he roots himself and establishes himself and his love deep in us, the things that we're praying for we get to become answers to those prayers. And so this morning, I think this is God's invitation. Let me come work in your own heart. And so as we close, I'm, I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. Um, and I'm just going to make some space for God to start that work that I believe he's going to do in us. And then um, after that, we'll... We'll take part in communion together. And so with that, let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God of invitation and a God of restoration. Lord, you didn't come to shame us or harm us. Lord, you came to bring light and to bring life. And you came to give purpose to each one of us. Lord, you you want to put your love in us and bubble it out. What what love is that? God, you're so good. And so Holy Spirit, we pray, just as Joy prayed earlier that you would brew over us. Lord, that you would begin to stir in us awareness of what you long to do in each and every one of us.